Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, it was my birthday last month. I don't know if you know this. I mean, I... I I assumed you know it, but I I'm still waiting for my present. I'm guessing it's probably just that that international mail. Yeah, you know, is, happy is birthday! Slow. It's a big. It's hard getting a car through the post. So, right, right. But yeah. besides, that wasn't my point. My point was my my birthday was last month, and my wife got happy me a, a, a thank you, uh, got me a really cool gift that I wanted to share with our listeners because it's it's really awesome and it's movie related. Ooh, okay. So uh, my wife got me this this lithograph or poster from uh, a company called Pop Chart Labs, and it is called 100 Essential Films. And it's basically a grid, a 10 by 10 grid of squares with 100 essential movies. Are you talking all your big classics, your, your super big hits, your most popular films of all time? But what's cool about it is each film is uh, like a scratch-off, kind of like a scratch-off lottery ticket. And so what it is is you scratch off all the movies that you've seen, and then you leave the ones that you haven't seen, and then as you see them, you scratch off the rest until eventually you have you know, 100 squares uncovered. So it starts off and, and they're they're all kind of silver. They have a little bit of artwork showing through. Um, and then as you go through and scratch them off, it gets more and more colorful. I like the idea of that. Yeah, it's been a lot of work, actually, <laughs> because they're not easy to scratch off. So I've been working <laughs> on it for about two weeks. I'm scratching off movies. I do about four or five at a time. Um, I'm almost finished. I have about one more batch of scratch offs to do and I'll have every movie I've seen on the list, uh, which is about 75 of the 100. Ah, um, okay. What's but what? I have been... What are some of the big ones you've not seen? Well, um, there's a number from the 70s. I know that's a big shock. Yeah. Uh, and then a lot from kind of the 40s and the 50s, which anybody who's listened to the show for a long time will will recognize from when we did those years that I, I had some gaps. A um, couple of big films. Let me think. What are some of the ones? Shane, I've never seen that. Uh, Nashville by Robert Altman. Uh, Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee. Amazingly enough, I've still never seen it. Yeah. Um, but I have been going through and watching a few of them now that I knew that I wanted to get some more spaces scratched off on my posters. So I have gone through and watched a few movies that I happened to, to own but hadn't gotten around to yet. So in the past few days, I've watched uh, Charlie Chaplin's City Lights. Oh, excellent, yeah. Dr. Strangelove by oh, Stanley Oh, you got Kubrick. to see that? What did you think of that yeah, one? Yeah, I, f- I finally watched it. And we just did 1962 uh, a, couple of, a couple of weeks ago, actually. Yeah, that was on my list, wasn't it? Although, spoiler alert, it wouldn't have been on mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> did you enjoy it? Um, no, not really. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I, I really... I, I it felt like an hour and a half of people just giving commands into radios, like military commands into radios. Like that's that's ninety percent of the film. <laughs> but yeah, so it didn't it didn't really it didn't do a whole lot for me. And then I also watched uh, the Studio Ghibli film Spirited Away, which is on the poster. Yes, uh, and it's considered, uh, you know one of Miyazaki's greatest films. I'm aware of that when you uh, you contact me today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so because I, I love um, I love Spirited Away. It's uh, it's a great film. Yeah, it's gonna I think it's gonna have to go on that that Big Lebowski list list of uh, movies that you and I disagree severely yeah. on because I really I really didn't enjoy it. I mean beautiful animation. Don't don't let that yes, you know, yeah, at least yeah, yeah. But just a terrible, terrible film with I mean zero narrative or a coherent plot to it whatsoever. So just to clarify listeners, that's 
That's not me, Phil Edwards, saying I didn't like uh, Spirited Away. That was uh, that was Mike Spring. Yes, I am a I am a cinema heathen. The apparently. American but, Mike Spring. Uh, but well, we are uncultured swine, us Americans. So I guess <laughs> I guess that fits. Your words, not mine. But uh, Charlie Chaplin's City Lights, if you've never seen it, is a masterpiece. That is and very I, good I highly film, recommend yeah. it. Yeah. So uh, so those are a few that I've gotten to. There's a couple more that I plan to get to, uh, and then I have to start kind of tracking them down one by one. But it's got everything from all the way back from Intolerance in 1916 to uh, Get Out from last year is on there. It's got uh, The Sixth Sense. And, and what's cool is some of the scratch-offs kind of tell a part of the story. Like on 12 Years a Slave, it's a picture of sort of, of like his – um, like his chest down to like his legs and you, you see his hands in chains in, in, you know like like handcuffs and then the handcuffs are what you scratch off and oh, so the remaining nice, picture yeah, yeah. is is him with with no handcuffs like a free man so oh, it's kind of neat how like. some of the scratch offs reveal or, or sort of relate to the story of the film yeah and also it's good the fact it's it's made you sit down and watch some of them you know some of the ones you hadn't seen it's good yeah it's good motivation you know they're all movies that I've wanted to see every film on here is one I'm familiar with or I've wanted to see but it's kind of nice motivation to be like all right I gotta get off my butt now because I want to scratch off the rest of these and have a nice colorful poster on my wall excellent no i like the sound of that i'll have to uh, check that out yeah so it's a, it's, a, it's a neat poster like i said it's it's uh just a cool gift that my wife got me we've got it framed hanging on the wall now and i thought that our listeners might get a kick out of hearing about that definitely yeah same. and i i know that they are waiting with bated breath to find out what you got me also so as soon as that comes in the mail wow it's gonna I will, be uh, i will tell everyone it's gonna be amazing <laughs> i can't really wait is. it's gonna take <laughs> It's, I'm going to send and get in parts over the next 12 years. And by the time you put it together, you'll see what it is. And you're going to go, wow, that Phil is really something. I can't wait, Phil. Yeah, because you can, you can say that phrase in a number of different ways. To apply. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. I think I have an inkling of which way I might be saying it. Yeah, it might it might look like a branch which is blown off a tree, you know, and it's just, you know, you know, been blown up against your front door. But that's probably part of the present. You just don't know. Okay. It's going to keep you guessing. <laughs> Ironically, I do have a large branch from a tree on my front porch right now. Wow, well. brilliant. Part one has turned up. Excellent. <laughs> Phil, you, you never cease to amaze me, and that's another phrase you that, can say a number of different ways. You can. You certainly can. <laughs> well done, Mike. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Well, why don't we get into our episode, Phil, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. We've got uh, a couple of good films. Well, depending upon how you view them, because as we've already found out, you know, uh, opinions can can vary quite widely on certain films yes they can going to be going after the ending of 1980s raise the titanic and the 1996 film swingers and we'll also be doing our top 10 films of 1976 indeed we will now now raise the titanic uh is a little bit more of a a cult classic if you will it is not a it wasn't a big hit i don't know that everyone's seen it i think it was a huge bomb at the box office wasn't it yes yes it was but i, I it was on tv a lot when we were kids yeah, so i feel yeah, like it's a yeah, movie that, that more people might have seen than than they realize but here's the thing if you haven't seen raise the titanic but you have seen sahara starring matthew mcconaughey same characters. This the, this movie is based on the, the novel by uh, Clive Cussler, who writes the Dirk Pitt novels. He's sold something like four bazillion novels worldwide, a uh, massively popular author. So uh, really- I haven't read any of them. Oh, really? I've read almost every single yeah. one. I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Great, great adventure. It's basically kind of like an American James Bond, but set more in like a nautical- setting type of thing yeah because i i enjoyed sahara i like that yeah sahara is a sahara is yeah. a great film 
And I did um, like which, I did enjoy Raise the Titanic when I was a kid. Yeah, I liked it as a kid too. I, I watched it as an adult, and it's not it's yeah. not great. It's not terrible. But yeah. um, basically, if you've even heard of Dirk Pitt, you can follow along with our endings. I don't know that there's going to be anything that's so paramount to the film itself that you know you're not going to follow along. So that's uh, just a little disclaimer. You don't you don't have to skip to the next film if you don't want to because I think we're going to have some fun with our with our endings anyway. Yeah. Even if you haven't seen the movie. And as always, when we're going into the film, we give a little rundown. Is anybody new joining us? So there's a spoilers ahead for about the next three or four minutes as we run down the events and that. So, but you know, it, you can still watch the film and enjoy it. Yeah, or or not enjoy it as the case. Yeah, or you can still watch the film and go, Jesus Christ, this is bad. <laughs> right. It's it's fine. Yeah. It's a fine film. It's it's not great or terrible. Where's Leonardo and Kate? <laughs> yes, this is actually a direct sequel to Titanic. Yes. And I believe also a remake of The Last Unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> My God, I think you're right. Whoa. Let's make a YouTube video, fan theory. <laughs> anyway, a little callback there. I, I love to throw I love to throw out the uh throw out the, the really obscure jokes for the for the eagle eared listeners. I know that's not a thing, being eagle eared, but I'm saying it anyway. <laughs> but we did the last unicorn a few episodes ago, so you can go back and listen to that if you want. Yeah, exactly. All right, so let's get into it. Raise the Titanic, shall we? Let's do it. All right, 1980, directed by Jerry Jameson, based on the book by Clive Cussler, starring Jason Robards, Richard Jordan, Anne Archer, and Sir Alec Guinness. The film opens with us learning that a rare mineral named byzanium was loaded onto the Titanic before it sank, and the U.S. wants that mineral to power a new project that will be able to shoot down nuclear missiles. Enter NUMA, the National Underwater Marine Agency, which is basically like NASA for the oceans. We could do something like that. Yeah. Oh, is, that, is it a real thing? Uh, no, it's not. No. We should have something like that because the ocean's so big and so untapped. It'd be great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we've all seen Sequest. Right, that unfortunately. That dreadful TV show. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I wish I'd remind myself of that. <laughs> Go on. Sorry. Move, moving on. <laughs> uh, we meet NUMA officer Dirk Pitt, played by Richard Jordan in a in a bout of somewhat terrible casting. Uh, Admiral Sandecker, played by Jason Robards, and scientist Gene Seagram, played by David Selby. Uh, his girlfriend is a reporter named Dana Archibald, played by Ann Archer. See how I got all the important people out in one sentence there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they set out to recover the Byzanium from the Titanic, but after some mishaps with the deep-sea submersibles, they're forced to raise the Titanic using some interesting means. The Russians show up and try and get the Byzanium, but a U.S. nuclear sub arrives to protect the now-floating Titanic. Dirk Pitt and Gene Seagram look for the Byzanium, but find it's not on the ship, but they find a clue leading them to a gravesite in Southby, England, where the Byzanium is secretly buried. Realizing its discovery will disrupt the tenuous peace between the U.S. and Russia, they leave it there with no one the wiser. And that is Raise the Titanic. Excellent. I did quite like that little twist. You know, it was, there. It was right in front of them from the very beginning, but they didn't realize. Right, right, yeah. That's, all, that's a very Clive Cussler-esque touch. That's actually something from the novel, as I recall. It's basically going, you didn't need to bother with any of this <laughs> right. if you just listened to people. And yep. thought about stuff. Yeah, exactly. I've just, I've just realized as well in my endings when I've written it down, I've put Selby instead of Dr. Seagram. So I've used the actor's name instead of that. So apologies <laughs> if I mention, I'm, I'm going through now quickly crossing out some of them. But if I do mention Selby, I mean Seagram. There you go. All right. Good disclaimer. We do make mistakes. You know, I'm going to admit it. You may think this is a, you know, tip top, nothing goes wrong kind of, a, you know, outfit. And it usually is. But occasionally something goes a tiny bit wrong like this. But, you know, we admit it. Yes. I, I think that our show definitely projects that air of tip top, Nothing ever goes wrong. Well, it's the fact we rehearse this. We, we go over this. We, we do it like six or seven times a day for four days. You know, and we get it right and right. And we get guest stars coming in. 
Um, you know, we always end up cutting them because they're rubbish. <laughs> this always ends up with just me and Mike. But that's, you know, that's how much effort we put in for this. That's right. Yeah. That's right. We, we, we work hard. Yeah. Well, let's not keep people in suspense any longer, <laughs> yeah. Phil. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and give us your day after? Okay, the day after. After the Titanic is cleared up and made safe, it becomes a major tourist attraction in New York City. Pitt heads off on further adventures around the globe, and Pitt and Seagram promise to keep the location of the Byzanium a secret. The lessons learned from raising the Titanic are passed to various organizations, as it could help retrieve other sunken ships and rescue people when, when other ships go down in the future. Meanwhile, back in New York City, one of the engineers named Jonathan Blair, who had worked on the cleaning up of the Titanic, had not been feeling well. Thinking it was a fever, he went to bed. At about 2 a.m., Jonathan Blair died. At 3 a.m., his eyes opened and the undead form of Johnny headed out into the city. <laughs> well, okay. All right. That uh, took it in a direction I wasn't expecting. Well, it's all scientific. I could go into it now, but we haven't got time. Right, right. I appreciate that. <laughs> okay, what's going on with your day after? As Dirk Pitt runs through the jungle dodging arrows, he tries to recall how he ended up in this situation. Dana Archibald, Jean's girlfriend, had revealed that she hadn't heard from him after the Titanic mission. Following a trail of clues, they'd ended up on a Numa vessel in the South Pacific, following up on another sunken ship Jean had been studying. Dana told Dirk that she and Jean had broken up, but she was still concerned about him. One thing led to another, and Dirk and Dana spent their days searching for the sunken wreck and their nights eating sushi and making love. Then the ship had been attacked by a Russian vessel that was disguised as a fishing trawler, but was instead heavily armored and weaponed. Dirk and Dana were abducted and brought to an unknown tropical island where they had been interrogated by a squad of Russian agents. Dirk had managed to escape, and now he was being chased down by the island's natives, all while trying to figure out how to get back and save Dana. Excellent. And that's my day oh, after. Much impact in mind. Probably more pit-like, but as I say, I'm not too hot on the pit novels, but I like it. Fair enough. Thank you. I, I you know, knowing the the pit adventures uh, as they were, I just wanted to kind of get a, a kind of big globe-trotting adventure story in so this was my chance to imagine do if you were one of these heroes from a, you know a big franchise like uh, pit or bond where you're constantly you know running for your life but then meeting these incredible people and doing cool stuff but then racing for your life again and getting tortured occasionally right yeah. when would you ever get a chance to rest i have no but god idea. bless these heroes <laughs> that's right all right phil why don't you go ahead and give us your immediate aftermath okay dirk pitt was currently in egypt working on something adventurous He'd heard that the news of New York City had been quarantined due to a strange virus. he had tried his best to find out if some of his friends in New York were okay, but he was having no joy. Some reports said that the dead were walking, but he felt that that was crazy talk. Dr. Seagram eventually tracked Pitt down and met up with him in a flustered state. He had been researching the Titanic and had come across a file marked top secret that had been forgotten about. The file said that an outbreak on the Titanic of a strange virus had almost decimated those on board. It turned out that the ship had been deliberately sunk by a submarine the survivors had been cleared of the disease, and the iceberg story had been spread. Some work had been done on a cure, but had not been developed. Guess what the main ingredient in the cure was, said Seagram. Byzanium, by any chance, said Pitt. Seagram nodded. That's my immediate aftermath. Ah, oh, very cool. I like that not only did you, you know, have the, this, the, the cover-up of the Titanic, which is really neat, but I like that you tied it back to the Byzanium as well, to keep it, keep it with the film. Well, it all, always comes down to the Byzanium or Unobtainium, yeah. whichever, you know, <laughs> right, fictitious right, memory you want. Right. Okay, but what's going on with, uh, with Pitt running through the jungle? Well, as Dirk trudges through the foot-high snow in the Arctic Circle, <sighs> he once again reflects on how he got here. <laughs> Excellent. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. He'd managed to save Dana from the Russians, blow up their base, and escape in a mini-submarine. 
When the sub had run out of fuel, Dirk and Dana had spent a week floating in the ocean, making love and snacking on the sub's surprisingly ample supply of finger foods. <laughs> they were finally picked up by a Numa ship after Dirk had fashioned a makeshift rescue beacon out of a Twinkie wrapper, a paperclip, and a barrette, a trick he'd learned from his good friend, a guy named MacGyver. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Seems like they'd be friends, you know? Yeah, they would, actually, yeah. With the Russian threat seemingly ended, Dirk tries to return to life as normal, but he's barely home a day before he's abducted by Korean forces. After a painful interrogation session in a gulag in the Arctic, in which it's revealed that the Koreans are after the Byzantium as well, Dirk manages to escape, and now he's three days into the frigid wilderness with no food and no supplies. If something doesn't happen soon, Dirk expects he won't survive the elements for very long. Oh, no. Yes, and now is a good time to point out what I meant to point out earlier, my disclaimer— uh, that I am not great with geography. And so anybody out okay. there listening who's going, wait, weren't they? And now how did they, and how are they over here? That's not near, that's, yes, you're right. I am wrong. The geography in this is completely made up. So please don't send us angry letters. <laughs> I, my apologies to all the geography teachers out there. I like it though. I've just got visions of this, a new Dirk Pitt film where it's just him just walking to somewhere or running but he doesn't have any flashbacks. He's just looking thoughtful the whole time right. as he's thinking of what's just happened. <laughs> yeah. And then it cuts to him in a totally different environment, just walking again or just like sitting by a campfire. Right, right. And then it ends and you just go, what the hell was that all about? <laughs> yes, that would be great. That's what the world needs. <laughs> Maybe the Tark- Tarkovsky kind of film. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or a Steven Soderbergh version. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's finish up this tale of zombies in the Titanic, Phil, and give us your long term. Okay, the virus had spread along the east coast of America and had moved over to the UK, Japan, and South Africa. Pitt had managed to find someone willing to take them to the UK, and they carefully made to the quiet village of Southby. There didn't seem to be a soul there. It would have to be a damn graveyard, muttered Pitt, as they made their way to, to Jake Hobart's grave. Seagram and Pitt began digging. The ground was hard. They slowly made some headway when they heard a deep groan behind them. Turning, Pitt saw two figures slowly stumbling towards them. Keep digging, said Pitt, as he picked up the shovel and headed towards the two figures. As he drew closer, he felt an air to just run as they were obviously zombies. Skin was sloughing off them, and their sightless eyes turned toward Pitts. They raised their arms as they moved towards him, and their teeth began chattering as Pitt lifted the shovel ready to fight. Seagram kept digging as quickly as he could, and finally hit something, a large suitcase. Opening it up, he found it contained the Byzanium. Looking around, he saw Pitt finishing off the second figure and walking back to him. Did you get it? said Pitt. Yes, Seagram said. Let's get moving. Good, said Pitt. How long will it take to make a cure? he asked. I'm not sure, said Selby. Why? Pitt pulled the collar of his shirt down, showing a bleeding bite wound. I think I'm going to need it soon. And that's my long term. Damn you, man. You can't turn Dirk Pitt into a zombie. Well, that's why you've got to wait and see the the third film in the trilogy. Right, 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 right. Exactly. Raise the pit. Right. (laughs) That's dreadful. Yeah, it is. Raise the Undead. Uh, Yeah, there you go. That's the name of this film. Right, that's the the name of this one, right. Raise the Titanic, Raise the Undead, and then Pitt Happens. (laughs) Okay, well, that was my ending. What's going on with your long term? Well, as Dirk hangs on to the dinghy against the hurricane force winds and waves buffeting (laughs) the small wooden craft, he once again wonders how he found himself in this situation. He should just stay home. He really should. After fighting off a polar bear and sustaining a pretty deep injury, Dirk had awoken in the hut of a native Siberian woman. She was quite beautiful, and after spending weeks nursing him back to health, Dirk had stayed for another week, eating seal meat and making love to his caregiver. 
(laughs) (laughs) Finally, he had to leave, so she helped him get back to civilization, where he contacted Numa. Unfortunately, a group of Iranian soldiers had arrived first and captured Dirk, bringing him to a coastal stronghold somewhere in the Middle East. After another interrogation, Dirk managed to escape on a small dinghy in the middle of the night. Now he was lost at sea and stuck in a hurricane. The next day, Dirk somehow miraculously drags himself up on a beach. How he survived is a mystery to him, but he did. Looking around, he realizes he's just a few kilometers from South Bee, England, where the Byzanium is buried. <laughs> Realizing that the abductions and interrogations won't stop until the Byzanium is destroyed, Dirk finds a nearby road and gets his bearings in relation to the cemetery where it's buried. He tries to puzzle out how he can blow the Byzanium up with just the items in his pockets. He pulls out a pocket knife, a stick of gum, and a wristwatch, thinks for a minute, then flashes a huge smile and gets to walking. <laughs> that's at the end. Brilliant. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. He's so talented. He can do anything. He really is. It's true. <laughs> All right. Well, Phil, I think it is time to raise the trivia. So what have you got for us? I'll allow that one. I like that one. Thank you. Okay. The film was of, the book and the film are obviously written and made before the Titanic itself was discovered. Uh, in the film, Raise the Titanic in 1980, uh, it's said that the Titanic rested at a depth of 12,347 feet. Uh, when the wreck was actually discovered in 1985, it was resting at 12,415 feet. So they were very, very close. Yeah, pretty crazy. Uh, they built a model of the Titanic, which cost $350,000, and then realized it was too big for the water tank in the studio. So they ended up having to build a new water tank, which cost $6 million. <laughs> Wow, I didn't know that. What a I know like somebody so just, got fired over that. I mean, come on. Just a bit, but the thing is, the model Titanic and the water tank was cost one million more than the cost of the real life Titanic, <laughs> which is just bizarre. Yeah. Uh, Clive Cussler hated the film so much he refused the sale of any other Dirk Pitt novels until two thousand and five Sahara, uh, which he also hated. Yeah, that was a big, tra- a big disaster with lawsuits and everything. Yeah. Also, it's why we're never going to see more, more Dirk Pitt books. Not for a while, anyway. It should be a TV show, I reckon. Uh, the film's budget hit $15 million before a single frame was shot, and it did crap at the box office. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unfortunate. But that's Raise the Titanic. All right, very good. Well, let's move on then to one of the hippest, coolest films of the 90s and a personal favorite of mine, Swingers. Oh, you're so money, Mike. <laughs> I am so money. Thank you for saying so. I always double down on 11. <laughs> yeah, very good. <laughs> Uh, I don't want to okay. see the bunny, Phil. I want to see the tiger with the claws. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I can't think of the quotes. Daddy's oh, little no. baby's all grown up. I could quote this movie oh, all day long. Vince, Vince Vaughn was on fire in this Oh, film. yeah, he really was. You can see why he became a star. Absolutely, absolutely. He's so slim. I, I know. He's never looked that good again. Now he just looks like he spent the night in a dumpster at all times. <laughs> but he was like really skinny and young in this movie. Yeah. Weren't we all once? Yeah, it's true. It's true. Mm. Apart from being a movie star. Right, right, right. All right, well, Phil, why don't you take us into the events of Swingers? Yes, it's uh, made in 1996, directed by Doug Lyman and written by John Favreau, who also starred in the film, along with Vince Vaughn, Ron Livingston, Heather Graham, Catherine Candle, and a few other people. Uh, we follow Mike Peters, played by John Favreau, who's a struggling comedian. He left New York City to move to Los Angeles, and his girlfriend of six years, Michelle, broke up with him six months before, and it still hurts him. He hasn't got over it. His friend Trent, played by Vince Vaughn, and a few other friends try and get him back out there. So they go to some nightclubs and go for, for a few drives and things like that. Uh, but every time they do, Mike messes up things with the women he meets, as he's always thinking about Michelle. He thinks about returning to New York City, but one night he meets a woman called Lorraine, played by Heather Graham, and a connection is made. 
The next morning, Michelle calls Mike, but he finds that he no longer misses her. When Lorraine calls him, Mike hangs up on Michelle and starts talking to Lorraine. He's moved on. And that's Swingers, basically. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a it's a nice a nice kind of uh, wrap up of it, but that's pretty much it. It's more a film about characters, dialogue, and moments, and moments yeah. than it is about you know a, a heavy plot. But it's it's very funny and it's uh, very true to life. Yeah, it really captures that mid '90s vibe. I mean, I, I wasn't in Hollywood at the time, but I know that just the way that that you know Mike and his friends interacted and the clothes that they wore and and the way my life was at the time when I was a very you know a similar age, uh, there was a lot of similarities. Like. I related to this film very much, and I definitely related to the character yeah, of Mike yeah. very much. I, oh, yeah, I me felt too. like he was like my on-screen avatar. Well, you could say they've got like the same name. <laughs> that that was one of the many coincidental, <laughs> uh, you know, things. We both drove the same car actually at the time, and everything too. So it was kind of like, oh man, he really oh, is me. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I love I love this movie. I think it's just utterly fantastic. It's very funny. It holds up very well. Um, yeah, Favreau yeah. And, and Vince Vaughn are, are terrific together. And it's just got so many great quotes. Oh, yeah, I, I, I do. I love it. It's been a while since I've seen it. But I've, I remember the first time watching it. And it just it just you just get taken along on this little journey of a few people just uh, living living the life. Yeah. Boy named Sue. Yeah. And there's just the bit when he's leaving the messages on the answer phone yes. and just yes. keeps hanging up and he leaves another one and another one and you're just cringing, but you know you'd probably do the same in that situation. Yep, yep. Yeah. yeah, great stuff, great stuff. But okay, then what What have you got happening on the day after? Okay, well, Mike hangs up the phone with Lorraine and he feels exhilarated. They spoke for three hours and it felt like it was just five minutes. It wasn't until the next day when Mike would even remember that Michelle had called him, but once he realized it, he didn't give her a second thought. Mike makes a date with Lorraine and picks her up that night, ignoring Trent and Sue's rules about waiting six days to call her. Mike and Lorraine share a nice dinner together, then go to a comedy club. Lorraine can sense that there's something going on with Mike and presses him, and he reveals to her that he wishes that he was the one up on stage. Lorraine excuses herself to go to the bathroom, and when she returns, a man is with her. Mike, this is Stan. He's the manager of the club, she says. Mike stands up, flummoxed, and shakes Stan's hand. You funny, kid? Stan asks. Yes, Mike stammers. Fine, you go on in two weeks. Ten minutes set. Don't screw it up, capiche? With that, the man walks away, leaving Mike and Lorraine in a little bit of shock. And that's my day after. Oh, very good. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you. I like that. There may be some basic similarities in this one, but uh, yeah, yeah, Mike and myself neither know what the other one's done. But uh, I think that's understandable though for this one. It is that kind of film where there obviously are some some plot lines you could some places you could take it that would make sense. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, yeah. similarities. What are you going to do? Yeah, but let's hear it. Let's hear your day after. Okay, Mike spends an hour talking to Lorraine on the phone. Neither realizes how much time has passed. They're lost in each other's words. Okay, yeah, Excuse a, little, a, little, yeah. a little similar to start. I was only an hour, you were three hours. Well, there, that's completely different then, <laughs> completely different. Yeah. Eventually, Lorraine asks Mike if he would like to meet up for dinner. He says yes, and they hang up. Mike sits and smiles for a while until Trent calls up, and they head out for coffee. Straight away, Trent can tell Mike's different, and it's not long until Mike tells him of the call. Trent gives a cool, funny monologue relevant to the situation. <laughs> the day passes, Mike stays calm, and he ends up meeting Lorraine. They have a perfect evening together, and they share a kiss at the end of the night. That's my day after. Very nice. I like it. So even though, even though there's similarities, I think we both kind of want the same things out of our endings. I think that's, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. anybody who likes this film, I think, is going to want to, you know, maybe see things go in a certain direction. So Yeah. Oh, and nobody turns into a zombie in this end. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, what's going on then with your immediate aftermath? Well, two weeks later, Mike is pacing backstage at the comedy club. He looks out into the audience and he sees Trent, Sue, Rob, and Charles in the front of the audience, chuckling along to the comedian who is currently on stage. He thinks back over the past two weeks, having spent almost every waking hour working on his comedy set. 
Not wanting Lorraine to fall by the wayside, she came over every day and helped him test out material, practice, and finesse his set until it was a tight ten minutes. Now she was nowhere to be seen. His stomach is filled with butterflies, and he begins to doubt that he can even get through his set. Just as the first comedian finishes, Lorraine comes rushing backstage. I'm so sorry, she says. My car broke down. I had to ride down here on my roller skates. Good thing I had them in the trunk. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Thank you. A little, little nod, maybe, to some other films. <laughs> Sensing Mike's nerves, Lorraine takes him by the shoulders, looks him square in the eye, and says, You can do this. I believe in you. You've got it. Then she gives him a big kiss and sends him out on stage as the MC calls his name. And that's my immediate aftermath. Ooh, excellent. Ooh, I wonder how it's that went. We'll find out. Mm. Okay. We will find out. But meanwhile, let's hear how your immediate aftermath goes. Okay. A few weeks pass. Mike and Lorraine have had a few dates and things are going well. Lorraine had been away for a few days and Mike went out with Trent and the guys. Mike's newfound confidence saw him chatting to a few different women. He gets a few numbers, but he has no intention of calling. He's just in the zone. He feels so money and he knows it. Trent almost has tears in his eyes as he's so proud of how well his friend is doing and the fact he's moved on from Michelle. And that's my immediate aftermath. Very nice. I like it. Go on, and what's happened with the set then in your long term? Well, as I want to do, sometimes there might be a little bit of a time jump. Go on. As Dirk Pitt was in the jungle. <laughs> yeah, right, right, Thinking right, about right. the comedy set he'd seen. As Mike runs through the desert. No. Um, <laughs> he realized why that last joke had bombed. Right. As Mike waits for Lorraine to walk down the aisle, he reflects on the <gasps> wild ride his life had taken over the past five years. Ah, lovely. His set at the comedy club had killed, and he was on top of the world. But what happened next was even more amazing. A young film director named John Favreau had caught his set and approached him to star in a movie he was making. Mike managed to get Trent, Rob, and Sue small parts as well, and the film had gone on to become a smash hit on the festival circuit. Mike signed a sitcom deal that he was able to write for and star in, and the show had just been renewed for another two seasons. Trent had landed a gig hosting a game show, and he was making crazy good money, sleeping with different women every weekend, and having the time of his life. Sue had finally given in to his destiny and started a Johnny Cash tribute band, which was currently touring the West Coast. <laughs> Rob had taken an office job to help pay the bills between acting jobs. <laughs> 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 That's Rob played by Ron Livingston. Just yeah, for, the, I, I almost did for anybody who didn't catch that. <laughs> but it didn't work out for him, and Mike had gotten him a small recurring role on another sitcom on the same network he was on. All of this flashes through Mike's mind as he waits for his bride-to-be. He flashes a smile at his best man Trent and Rob and Sue, his groomsmen, and then the organ starts to play. Lorraine steps out to walk down the aisle, looking radiant in her fancy white dress. You are so money, Mike says to himself under his breath then turns to face the justice of the peace as Lorraine takes her place by his side right where she belongs. And that's the end. Very nice. I like it. Thank you. I, I, I felt the need to deliver a happy ending for Mike after everything he went through in the film. And because I related to him so much, I, I didn't have it in me to not let him get the happy ending I think yeah, he deserves. Yeah, yeah. Because he's a yeah, good guy, uh, ultimately. He's a good guy. Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. Uh, and definitely, though, I'm just going to once again reiterate <laughs> that neither Mike or myself know what the other one's written. Just in case there's any similarity. <laughs> just, just in case. Just in case. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mike had written a stand-up routine based on his first few weeks in LA, and it went down a storm. A number of showbiz types were in the audience, and it led to a spot on The Tonight Show, which led to more bookings and a few roles on TV shows. Mike and Lorraine's relationship grew slowly and steadily. Both had been hurt in the past, and they didn't want to ruin things. Trent and the rest of Mike's friends were all doing well, with Trent getting a few film roles and finally a recurring role on a daytime soap. A couple of years passed. Lorraine and Mike were now living together and happy. Mike returned to their apartment after a meeting at a studio. He'd written a treatment for a new comedy show that was based on Mike and his friends. 
The studio loved it and ordered a pilot. Even better, they wanted Mike and Trent to star in it. The future looked bright. And that's my long term. Very good. So similar, but I mean, different in the details. Yeah, I, yeah. I think yeah. obviously with characters like this, they're they're going to go a certain a certain way without, you know, unless we yeah. decide to go completely wacky, crazy off off the wall. But I think this is a film that you and I both have uh, a real affection for. So we wanted to yeah, stay true yeah. to the spirit of the film. Definitely. It's, uh, it's definitely worth checking out if you haven't seen it. Indeed. All right. Well, nicely done, Phil. Uh, why don't you tell us if you have any swingers trivia? Okay. Quite a few of the scenes were filmed without a permit and uh, on occasion... Uh, cops stopped them while they were filming, but they did some, you know, while they were talking to the policemen, the cameras were still rolling. So uh, John Favreau and uh, Vince Vaughn could keep, and were talking in cars and stuff like that. Uh, the film was based on Favreau's time when he first moved to LA. He uh, counted on his friends Vince Vaughn and Ron Livingston to cheer him up. Mike's apartment was the place that John Favreau lived, actually lived in at the time, and his downstairs neighbour was actor Adam Scott. Oh, that's cool. And John Favreau wrote the screenplay in two weeks. Wow. I guess it's easy when it's based on your own life, you know? Yeah, yeah. And when they were filming the answer phone uh, scene, all the uh, all the crew thought it was going on way too long and was going to be dreadful. <laughs> but but John Favreau said, no, that's the point. Right. It's going to work. And it works great. It's such, it's such an yeah, indelible it's moment yeah. in the, in the yeah. film. That's Swingers. All right. Very good. So there you go. Those are our endings for Swingers and Raise the Titanic. Now it's time to move on to 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 Episodes, in which we take a year from the past century of Hollywood and share our top 10 films. This week we are doing 1976. So, Phil, why don't you climb into your famous time machine? Tell us what the world was like back in 1976. Okay, in, in 76, the UK Prime Minister was James Callaghan, who handed over to Harold Wilson, and in the US, the President was Gerald Ford. In that year, we saw the Cray-1, the first commercially developed supercomputer, being released. It was also the first commercial flight of Concorde. A little film called Star Wars began filming in Tunisia, but uh, I don't think it's going to do much. It looks a bit cheesy. I think it's a cult classic now. Right, I doubt even that. I mean, it just looks stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the Apple Computer Company was formed by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Again, can't see that amount too much. No. Uh, the Ramones released their first album called Ramones. Uh, the UK and Iceland ended the Cod War. The Cod, the fishing. The cod yeah, War? There was all, there was lots of, you know, the fishing grounds and things. There was uh, lots of uh, toing and throwing. It, was, it sounds more exciting than it actually was. I, you know, I got to say, it doesn't actually sound all that exciting either. So, <laughs> Yeah, you t- well, yeah. It's I thought, yeah, probably the war thing, which, uh, yeah. Okay, the CN Tower was built in Toronto. The Viking One lander landed on Mars, which was a good job because that was, lander was part of its name. Uh, the first, uh, 1976, also saw the first known outbreak of the Ebola virus. Uh, the Muppet Show was broadcast for the first time. Uh, an Irish band called U2 was formed. And the band called the band held its farewell concert, The Last Waltz, which is a, a great concert film if you haven't seen it. And I highly recommend watching that. And we had the births of Michael Penner, Isla Fisher, Tony Yar, Charlie Day, Kelly MacDonald, Rashida Jones, Freddie Prince Jr., Corey Stoll, Sterling K. Brown, Reese Witherspoon, uh, Glenn Howerton, Sally Hawkins, Colin Farrell, Benedict Cumberbatch, Sam Worthington, Alexander Skarsgård, Ryan Reynolds, John Bernthal, Sam Regal, Alicia Silverstone. And we saw the passing, sadly, of Agatha Christie, uh, Werner Heisenberg. So if you're a Breaking Bad fan, you'll know what that meant. Uh, uh, Howard Hughes, Max Ernst, Carol Reed, J. Paul Getty, Fritz Lang, Dalton Trumbo, Benjamin Britten, Man Ray, and Rosalind Russell. And that's 1976. Very well done. Phil, why don't you go ahead and kick us off then with your number 10? Okay, my number 10 is Murder by Death, which is uh, it's sort of like a 
it's a murder mystery comedy. It's a spoof, basically, of all those uh, whodunits, you know, a bunch of people together because it involves lots of lots of characters based on famous detectives from fiction, like uh, Hercule Poirot, uh, Sam Spade, all those, Miss Marple, all those things. But the cast list is amazing. David Niven, Peter Sellers, Peter Falk, uh, Truman Capote, uh, Elsa Lanchester, so many, loads of people, but it's very funny. All these all these great actors playing these large and life characters, all the uh, the murder mystery cliches you'd want, all thrown in together. Lots of red herrings, some over the top performances, which all work quite well. Uh, just lots of fun, and uh, I'm very very funny. Yeah, indeed, I actually like that movie quite a bit. It was on my short list. Uh, the only reason it didn't make my list is because it's been so long since I've seen it that I I couldn't really remember where it fell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I do, I it's do. It's one like of those it. ones. Whenever you see it, you go, Oh God, I forgot about that <laughs> right, bit or this right, bit. Yeah, things. yeah, yeah, yeah. But good film for sure. All right. Okay, what's your number 10? My number 10 is Marathon Man, starring Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier. Uh, and it's a, it's this really cool film about a man who is uh, mistaken for somebody else, and he is kidnapped by uh, sort of Nazi-type people, and they are trying to find out information from him that he does not have. And there's a really, really memorable scene with a tooth, and um, that's all I'm going to say about is it. Is it safe? Right, is it safe? Exactly. That's the big catchphrase from the film. Uh, but it's a really taut thriller, a great kind of 70s kind of conspiracy paranoia except he's not paranoid because they're actually after him yeah yeah and um just a really intense film dustin hoffman's fantastic and i like it a lot an excellent choice uh, my number nine is uh martin scorsese's taxi driver robert de niro you well, we all know the film robert de niro drives a taxi that's all that happens in it yeah that's all <laughs> yeah but it's uh it's uh it's got some great performances it goes to dark places it's like a broken person just trying to get by, but he doesn't know how to interact with people. Uh, it leaves at the end. You're not sure exactly whether it really happened, if he's alive, dead, things like that. But uh, I quite like it. Uh, it was. I didn't see it when you know uh, for a long, long time, and then when I eventually got around to seeing it, I enjoyed it. Thought it was great, but I probably don't love it as much as uh, lots of other people out there do. But that's my number nine. Yeah, I can. I can understand that. Um, I can understand it so much. It's actually one half of my number nine. Uh, oh, excellent. I, okay. I have a tie at number nine for of Taxi Driver and All the President's Men, ah. which I, I'm sure will be surprising to some people, but I feel the same way as you. I didn't see Taxi Driver for a long time, and when I did finally see it, uh, we know I'm not a big Martin Scorsese fan. I do think this is one of his better films. I do like the film, but I don't love it. Um, and All the President's Men is, is right up there. I, I kind of paired these together, even though they're very different types of films, because they're both films that are kind of in that critical conversation as among the best films ever made. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they're both films that I respect, but are not films that I love. I think All the President's Men is honestly kind of boring in the middle. There's there's large parts of that movie which are just people waiting in pay phones a, a, for phone calls and <laughs> yeah. all, or waiting in phone booths. Like all I can think of is like, God, if this if they had cell phones in this movie, it would it would be so much better, which I realize is blasphemy. But um, <laughs> I just I, I it makes it on the list still because Redford and, and Dustin Hoffman, their performances are great, but I find both these movies to be good and worthy of respect, but not movies that I love or feel the need to rewatch very often. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Okay, my number eight is The Omen, uh, directed by Richard Donner, uh, Gregory Peck, and Lee Remick. You know, it's the uh, it's Damien, the Antichrist 666, and all that. Some uh, again, I didn't see this one for a while, and then when I did, I really in, I enjoyed it. I thought the uh, all the death scenes were pretty cool, uh, but it didn't hit me quite as much as. Probably if I'd seen it a few years younger than I actually was when I did see it, I probably would have enjoyed it even more. But it's a, a great concept. I, I just like the way it is. The mystery builds up and uh, Gregory Pack's great. Uh, some really disturbing moments in it, some great scenes. And it's uh, my number eight. Very good. 
My number eight is also a horror movie. It is Brian De Palma's Carrie, starring Sissy Spacek. This is a weird film. I think we talked about it, actually, on one of our Halloween episodes. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a strange film, for sure. It's a lot slower than you remember. Like, I mean, the first, like, half hour or so is really just, just like, teenage girls, you know, being bitchy to each other. Um, and there's some yeah, really yeah. lecherous stuff in the camera work. Um, I mean, the, the opening scene is like an eight-minute slow-motion dolly shot through a girl's locker room in various states of undress, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. But... Because you can, you can sort of see the point of it, though, when you get to the payoff of that scene. Right, yeah, I know yes, what you mean. yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not knocking it necessarily. I'm just saying it's, 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 a, it's an interesting film. It's not like a fast-paced, moving horror mm-hmm. film like people are used to nowadays. Um, but the last, like, half hour or so of that film, when... when you know, when Carrie's powers just, come out yeah. and there's like a long like 10 or 15 minute sequence where it's like completely silent you know it's just it's just everything happening in slow motion and there's no music and no sound effects and like it's it's utterly riveting I mean the last half hour of that film is a masterpiece I, I wish the whole film was as good as the ending is but it's still still a pretty enjoyable film and I am a big Brian De Palma fan so uh, that's my number eight an excellent choice that almost made my list just kept getting pushed down a little bit but I think uh, uh, pretty much the same as you like the same same reasons as you say it is very slow which works in part in part but then also i just feel who am i to say you know whether you know how what the director should do but i just felt it could have been a little bit tighter just just in a few little places yeah and it would have been you know absolutely perfect right right exactly a good pick my number seven is logan's run very good michael york and jenny agatha in a future apparently utopian society where people at the age of 30 all die you know to keep the population down a cool concept it's sort of I remember loving it when I was uh, younger, when I was a kid. It hasn't aged that well in certain places, some of the effects, but there's still parts that I really, really like. Uh, it's got a soft spot for my heart, uh, and that's why that's why it's my number seven. Good pick. All right, well, my number seven is King Kong, starring Jeff Bridges. Uh, and I know... Ooh, controversial. Yes, it is, and I, and I realize that. But here's the thing. I... This is not a great movie. I recognize that. It is a man in a large ape suit, and um, it's, you know... It's not fantastic, but this is really a big nostalgia pick for me. This is the movie that made me a King Kong fan. Now, I consider the 1933 King Kong to be by far the best King Kong and also one of my favorite movies of all time. But if I'm being honest, the movie that got me into King Kong was this one, which was on TV a lot when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. And I would watch it over and over again. And and him climbing up the Twin Towers, you know, the World Trade Center. That's just an indelible yeah. memory in my mind. And so while while it's it doesn't hold up that well, it, it does have some really great imagery in it. And to me, it's just that that nostalgia. When I see this film, it reminds me of my childhood. So it's higher on the list than it maybe deserves to be as far as pure quality goes. But, you know, like you with Logan's Run, it's got a special place in my heart. Yeah, cool. No, that's a good reason for it to be in there. I remember that was on, I think I saw it at some point last year. And I always find a bits with King Kong and it just, just don't work but i yeah the bits with uh jeff bridges and jessica lang i quite liked i know what you mean but it's yeah it doesn't quite work for me right okay my number six is a couple of films it is uh the outlaw josie wales clint eastwood film uh, which is set after the american civil war and he's uh he's a farmer whose family gets murdered and he goes off for revenge does that clint eastwood being clint eastwood's got some it's a little bit different from the uh this you know the man with no name trilogy uh, there's a bit more humor in it uh, lots of quite a few more characters Clint says a, quite a bit more in this one, but some great scenes, great action scenes. Uh, not my, it's not my favorite Clint Eastwood film, but I do enjoy it. And this, the other one at number six is The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, uh, which was written and directed by John Cassavetes and stars Ben Gazzara. And it's uh, it's all about a guy 
who uh, he's got a debt that he owns to a loan shark and he's trying to get out of it. It's violent, it's dark, it's uh, it's raw and it's uh, a great movie. It's just got a good style to it, great characters and you're not sure who's going to die, who's going to kill people, what's going to happen. And uh, The Outlaw Josie Wells and The Killing of a Chinese Book, he'd be a great double feature. And it's my number six. Very good. I will admit I've never seen The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, so it didn't make my list. But my number six is The Outlaw Josie Wales. Oh, excellent. Uh, everything you said about it. It is Clint Eastwood at his peak. Uh, I think it's one of his best films, personally. I really do love this movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's just, I again, like like you and like with many of the films on this list, I did not see it until you know sometime probably in the last five or six years. Um, but I had always heard of it, and I finally made it a point to watch it, and I, I really enjoyed it. So uh, that's my number six. Excellent. Okay, yeah, my number five... It's already men- been mentioned on yours. It's Marathon Man. Uh, for the same reason, it was written by William Goldman, who's always, you know, he writes some damn fine films. Yes. Uh, it's a great film. It is, it is. lots of you will know it because of that, is it safe scene, uh, but you probably don't want to watch it, but it's well worth seeing. That's just a small part of it. It's a, It's got some great moments. It's, uh, he chose New York in a great way. Uh, Roy Scheid is in it as, as, as uh, Dustin Hoffman's brother. He has some great scenes, great fight scene with him and uh, uh, lots going on. And... Uh, just great performances by everybody involved. Very good. My number five has appeared on your list already, and it is Logan's Run, hey. um, which, again, keeping with the theme of this list, uh, I did not see until about, I think, three or four years ago. And I'd always heard about it. I knew there was comic books. And I knew it was like, you know, when you go to like the, the conventions and stuff, you'd always run across like memorabilia from it here or there, little things. But you knew it was like a big cult classic that people loved. Yeah. And so I finally watched it a couple of years ago, and I really liked it. I, I, I think it... I know what you mean about parts that haven't date aged well, like when all the people are yeah. floating in the big circular thingy or whatever. But like the carousel, right? But the scenes like where they get out into like the destroyed kind of earth and everything, I think are really cool. Um, and I, I just really like it. I like the concept. I love you know I love that sort of dystopian future is one of my favorite genres. Uh, so I was actually quite pleased by it, by how good it was. So that's my number five. Excellent. My number four is Silver Streak, uh, a comedy thriller starring Gene Wilder, Jill Clayberg, and Richard Pryor. And it's all about a few people on a train and uh, Gene Wilder's character gets drunk, meets this girl and he sees a dead body hanging out the outside and um, he ends up getting involved in this scheme and people are trying to kill him and he meets up with Richard Pryor and he gets keeps getting knocked off the train, gets back on it. It's very funny. I always like Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder together. It's uh, it's a good meld of comedy and thriller. Some great bad guys in it. I mean, Patrick McGowan, Ned Beatty and Richard Keel. That's, that's great to watch. Uh, lots of fun. Uh, even a few bits where you're on the edge of your seat, even though you know it's a comedy. But uh, yeah, it's uh, Silver Streak. And I haven't seen it in a long, long time. And I want to watch it soon. Makes sense. I haven't seen it at all, actually, I have to admit. So. Oh, haven't you? That's yeah, good. yeah. I, I'm familiar with it. I've wanted to see it for a while, but I just haven't gotten around to it. Yeah, it used to be on TV all the time when I was a kid, and it's barely on that. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Well, my number four is a film I really love that most people have never heard of, and I, I'm hoping I can expose it to some, some new audiences. It is called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Oh, I know that. I like that Yeah, I, I love this movie. It's a, it's a little scene kind of cult classic horror film based on a real-life uh, Texarkana killer from back in the 50s, uh, and um, it's kind of a slasher film, but it was made, obviously, in the 70s, and it's really cool. Like, it's it's a good, kind of scary, you know, it's got some great moments. It's a killer wearing, like, a sack over his head, so kind of reminiscent of, like, early Jason, um, but yeah. obviously predating him. But um, there's, like, this one great scene where the, the cops are sort of, like, chasing him, and they, they kind of run out shooting, and it's done in slow motion from, like, this low camera angle. And so, like, 
For a film that's basically like a low-budget kind of proto-slasher flick, it has some surprisingly cool cinematic touches to it. Um, but more than that, it's just a lot of fun. I, I really like it. It's scary. It's creepy because it's based on a real-life story. Um, and uh, I just think it's an awesome, awesome flick. I hope people will go check it out because it's it's uh, it's a lot of fun. There is a Blu-ray edition out from uh, Shout Factory, from Scream Factory, uh, their horror imprint. So it's definitely worth tracking down. Yeah, there was a remake in 2014 as well, which I've not seen. I, I actually like the remake. It's, yeah. it's a little bit more of a um, typical slasher film, but it has a bit of a meta kind of a- a- angle to it because it, it does take the first film and makes that part of the plot. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. That, that this this film exists in the real world that people have seen, and these are the people in this area, and the sort of the killer comes back. It's not as good as the original. That's a good way. Instead of just doing a straight remake, it's good doing something like right, that. Right, exactly. It, it's If you like a good, fun slasher movie, the remake is worth watching too. Cool. But uh, yeah, I remember watching the original a long, long time ago. And enjoying it, but uh, it's been years since I've seen it. Yeah. But uh, you mentioned like it had like a few cool shots as well, and I think lots of those old uh, slasher horror movies did because half the time, you know, it was the first time somebody made a movie, right? And so you know they didn't they didn't know all the the apparent rules you were meant to follow, so they they just go well, let's try this, let's do this, <laughs> right. and you know they create new stuff. It's it's really good. Yeah, agreed. My number three is. Uh, is Rocky, written and starring Sylvester Stallone. We all know Rocky. It's become a monster now. There's been it's been going on lots of films, and it's now with Creed. I don't need to go into it, but it's just a great film. And the fact he doesn't win at the end is a, you know even better. Yeah, I think it's probably going to be on lots of people's lists. That one. I would I would imagine so. <laughs> well, Phil, believe it or not, my number three is also Rocky. No way. Yeah, believe it or not, I, I we all know I love the Rocky movies. They're a big event for me. Yeah. But if I'm being honest, the first one is definitely much more of like a '70s drama. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, the second and third ones are the more action-packed, fun Rocky movies, you know? So That's while true, I yeah. love the first film, obviously, it's a classic. Uh, so I know some people thought it would be my number one. Um, it's very close to it. I, I had, a, I will say my number, my top three could have gone in any order. Um, but Rocky comes in at number three. Could have been my number one very easily. But obviously, I love it. And I love the whole story about Stallone, you know, being basically penniless and having written the script but refusing to sell it unless he could star in it i mean yeah. it's, that's part of hollywood lore now but it's it's true and it's a great inspirational story and it's a great inspirational movie excellent choice and uh, my number two is one which has been on your list but it was a lot higher up it's all the president's man i had a feeling that would show yeah up which uh, which i really like and i know what you mean about some of the scenes but uh the fact it's based on you know the watergate scandal that really happened the fact that some of those scenes where they are just waiting or they're just talking and you can get so tense and you because you, you're going oh and it's just it's just people talking and waiting and there's there's no there's no violence really and it's just it's just these two two reporters trying to get to the truth of something which they sort of stumble upon and then realizing how big it goes and feeling out of the depth but sticking to the guns and making sure they speak to the right people and yeah i i just uh, i Brilliant performances by Redford and uh, Hoffman. Great supporting cast as well. Everybody in it is like a solid actor. Oh, for sure, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I just um, you know, I've seen the, I've seen it like three times, and every time I watch it, I'm like, I'm gonna sit down at this time, and I'm gonna really enjoy it. I'm gonna I'm gonna dig in and pay attention, and you know, and I I still just halfway through, I'm like, ah, it's a little slow. <laughs> this yeah. movie could be. 20 minutes shorter. Okay, I know exactly what you mean, but yeah. All right, well, my number two has appeared on your list, so I'm returning the favor, and it is The Omen uh, with Gregory Peck. Yeah, Yeah, you know, it's funny because I know it's a horror movie, and I think it gets lumped in with with horror movies, which are not necessarily always seen as great films, but this is another one of those films I didn't see for a long time, although a while back now. I probably saw it 10 or 15 years ago, but, you know, obviously it's famous. It has several sequels. It was a big hit. Um, 
you know, and I, I've grown to become a Gregory Peck fan over the years. So when I finally sat down to watch this one, I remember being really blown away by how good it, it really is. Yeah. You know, it's a combination of, of horror film, but also that 70s conspiracy thriller and paranoia, like I mentioned earlier, um, all kind of rolled up into one. I think Gregory Peck is terrific. It's got some really scary moments in it, some really intense moments in it, some creative kind of deaths, like the priest who gets impaled and stuff like that. And lots of, some real, some some moments which just make you go, what the hell? Yeah, right, right, exactly. Um, you know, and then I just, this dilemma of a parent having to struggle with whether or not to kill their own kid, I just think gives it a really uh, sharp emotional core. And, and Richard Donner brings some great, you know, visual flair to it as well. So it's just a movie that I really, really like. That's my number two. An excellent choice. Okay, my number one could be your number one as well, but it's. Uh, I think there. I think there's a good chance. Yeah, uh, John Carpenter film Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Well, to quote you, Phil, we've got a bingo. Hey, that's excellent. Yeah, it's a great film. Very tense. Very small story. Uh, based, it was inspired by uh, Rio Bravo in Night of the Living Dead, and you can you can see that even if you haven't seen yeah. those films, it's just it's there. Uh, but it's it's done so well. Just these people stuck in this police station, which is closing down. And this gang just want to kill everyone, yeah. and they're willing to die for it. And it's tense, dramatic. It's also rather funny in places, but just, just the open scene. You can just, it's just done so well where there's nobody around, and it makes sense in the context of the film. And you can all, you could see that, you could see it happening, even though it is crazy what happens. But you could, you could see it happening. But it's just great moments. Uh, not really any huge big names in it. Uh, but uh, they all do solid work, and it's it's better for the fact that we weren't, they weren't huge names because you really buy into the characters that way. Ah, uh, yeah, I just love it. So good, so such a good film. Yeah, I mean, it's it's John Carpenter's first kind of official film, um, and he I mean, does a terrific job with it. But uh, you know, I love about what I love about it is. First of all, it doesn't pull its punches. I mean, the opening scene is a little girl getting shot in the head at an yeah. ice cream truck, which yeah. sounds really morbid, but it's it's not. I mean, it's intense, but it's not meant to be. It's, it sets the tone and shows you just, you know, how bad the bad guys are. Right, right, exactly. It sets the stakes for the film. If they're willing to do that, then what all, you know, all bets are off is what's going to happen. Right, exactly. And um, and, and also, I, I'm, I mean, one of my favorite genres of films is whenever you take like a small group of people and put them up against an overwhelming force, you know, that yeah, sort of, yeah. you know, we're stuck in this place, we're trying to survive against this, you know, wave of, you know, soldiers or creatures or, you know, weather elements, whatever it is, when you give me that and it's sort of like a small group, they're getting picked off one by one, they're fighting to survive. I, I love those movies and this movie while obviously not the first one to do that is one of the first films of my generation yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean I was barely alive at this point but you know one of the first films of my generation to really do that and sort of just take it to the nth degree and, and I absolutely love it so I'm a big John Carpenter fan as I know you are so yeah. obviously that that lends a little to it but it's just a great fun action movie well it's just the first time I remember seeing it, it just like it just it smacks you in the face and just just drags you along on this on this adventure well not really adventure but on this this journey of these people trying to survive. Yeah, good stuff. But I also like it's also cool the way you know the police and the the criminals and the and the police station join up to survive as well. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah, loads of great touches. Mm-hmm. But that's uh, that's our number one of nineteen seventy six. Yeah, a lot of a lot of matchups this week. Yeah, it seems yeah. like so. Yeah, some some good films in seventy six. Even though I'm not usually a big fan of the the seventy cinema, as I've mentioned before, this was an easy one for me to put together ten films that I really enjoy. Yeah, a good range of films as well. Lots of different genres. Not all of them deadly serious. I mean, there's lots more could have had in the top ten, but they just 
there was others which just beat it, beat them out. But uh, right, yeah, right, a good year indeed. All right, well, that is going to wrap up our top ten list, and that is also going to start to wrap up our show. But Phil, before we go, why don't you tell people what we have in store for them next week? Okay, then. So next week we're going to be going after the ending of the Presidio and Unbreakable. And doing our top 10 films of 1992. That should be fun. Definitely. We thought we'd get Unbreakable in before the uh, official sequel comes out next year. Yeah, yeah. Try and, try and beat the sequel. You know, you think you got all this time to, to for a sequel to a movie that came out in 2002. But all of a sudden, yeah. we've got one breathing down our necks. <laughs> what are you playing at? I'm nice. What's going on? <laughs> right? Thank you very much, Mr. Shyamalan. Yeah, I am looking forward to that, though, actually. Oh, yeah. For sure. For sure. All right, well, that's going to do us for now. As always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Something about the Watchmen TV show has just come up. Oh. Uh, Damon Lindelof, he's written a five-page letter. Oh, good, Damon Lindelof. (laughs) So it'll never end. I know. They have no desire to adapt the 12 issues more. And Gibbons created the issues of sacred ground. They will not be retread, nor recreated, nor reproduced, nor rebooted. But the story will be remixed <laughs> on the events of the Watchmen comics are canon. The HBO series is not a sequel, but is a story set in the world that's created painstakingly built. It has to fight. Oh, my God. We're not going to redo it, reboot it, or remake it, or anything anything pedantic like that. No, no. We're going to remix it. Remix it, it and set it in the modern day. <laughs> new faces, new masks to cover them. So why why call it Watchmen? Uh, pretentious party of one. Your table is waiting. <laughs> God. And headed towards the duo. Towards the, the what? Figure, towards the what? The the duo. Oh, and headed towards the two figures. What was Jiro? Duo. Oh, duo. duo. Man, sometimes your accent, I got to say, once in a while, it trips me up. It's not like you're saying Jiro, like J-I-R-O. I'm like, what's a Jiro? But Giro. it's duo, like duo. Yeah, That's Giro. just your accent. Yeah. All right. I'll just say, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what did it, where are we up to? Da, 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 da. This has been another episode of Cultural Understanding with your yes. hosts, Mike and Phil. Yeah. And now on to the Freddie Prinze Minute. <laughs> it's uh, Freddie Prinze was born in 1976 by the way oh there you go see and also Freddie Prince occasionally has trouble with your accent <laughs> very well done Phil why don't you okay why don't you stutter <clears throat> <laughs> done really well it's suspenseful that's the phone <laughs> oh, somebody's gonna get that damn one. it mom get the phone Diablo Josie Wales and the killing of a Chinese book he'd be a pretty good uh, evening worth of film that doesn't make sense would be a pretty good What's the, what the, what's the thing? Double have, feature? Yeah, that's the Good God. What's wrong with me? <laughs> All right, well, there you go. So that's going to do us. So meanwhile... <laughs> I think I've done this enough times now. It wouldn't be that hard, you know? You can do it. Yeah. Apparently I can't. <laughs>